Thank you. Thanks, Brendan. Can everybody hear me? Yes. yes. I'm not cutting out. Pardon me while I adjust my podium. Uh, well, as you can tell, as you've heard, I've been around for a while. Um, when I when I moved here after college, I planned to stay for one year, and I've now been here almost third, well, 27 years. So those of you who think you're just here for a short stint, Potomac fever will catch you. Um, I uh, have been fortunate. I might just take this off. Can you hear me? Okay. I've been fortunate to have a diverse career um, working in government and in business and in the nonprofit sector, specifically for the church. Um, it has given me a broader perspective than I might otherwise have, particularly when it comes to trying to live your faith every day as a Catholic in the nation's capital, especially. Um, I understand some of your recent presentations have addressed religious liberty, and what I would like to talk about tonight is more specifically about the state of religious practice today, the impact of that on our culture. Notice I said the impact of religious practice on our culture, not the other way around, because we do have more influence than we, I think, a lot of times believe. Um, and when I say on our culture, I, I mean broadly defined, but specifically when it comes to our laws uh, and um, uh, when it comes to, to government and to the courts. And what you and I can do about it. Because if we continue on the current path, it's not inconceivable that religious practice in America, as we know it, will be very different uh, in, in the coming years. Maybe not immediately, uh, but for your children and grandchildren, religious practice in America will be different. And some may say this is alarmist. People always think it's alarmist before it actually happens. It's like the frog, the proverbial frog in the kettle of boiling water. You put him in there when it's not boiling and he thinks everything's fine. And before he realizes it, he's boiling and it's too late to do anything about it. Uh, I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, and perhaps, like many of you, went to Mass every Sunday with my family. I went to Catholic schools. My sisters and I both did. Uh, how many of you went to element Catholic elementary school? Raise your hand. Keep it up. How many went to Catholic high school? Raise your hand and keep it up. Catholic college? Raise your hand and keep it up. Um, continue it, or, uh, sorry, religious education, CCD. Okay, so... We're all a lot alike in this room, and we probably grew up a lot the same way, um, where we went, we were surrounded by people either who practiced our faith or another faith, Christian faith most likely, or Judeo-Christian. Uh, Judeo we, um, we had the same values and the same experience, pretty much. You just got a glimpse of the universality of the Catholic Church in that little exercise. Uh, my mother converted to Catholicism when my parents got married 50 years ago. They just celebrated their anniversary. And as is often the case with converts in particular uh, and Catholic mothers in general, she was kind of the driving force behind our growth in the faith. Not that my father was not involved, he certainly was, but in a more quiet, subtle kind of way. Um, we always went to Mass, my parents were always involved in the parish or in other Catholic organizations, Christ Child Society, the Parish Finance Council. And since we were kids, uh, that was always the case. And, but as it turns out, though, fathers play a more important role, a more dominant role, in their children's future religious practice. And you may have heard this. There was a study conducted by the Swiss government in 1994, and the findings were released in, or published in 2000. And it showed, uh, compared a number of scenarios, if the mother's not practicing and the father is, if the father's not practicing and the mother is, if both are, if neither are, and what, what the statistical probability was that their children would be practicing their religion at some point in their life or not. The bottom line was that it's the religious practice of the father of the family that, above all, determines the future religious practice, attendance at or absence from church of the child. 
If a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful the wife's devotions, and don't take this, women, as a reason not to go to church, but know that fathers especially need to know that if a father does not go, no matter how faithful and devoted the, the mother is in her practice, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. If a father does go regularly, regardless of the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers, either regular or irregular, but they'll go at some point. Two-thirds to three-quarters. Uh, one of the reasons suggested for this distinction is that children take cues from their, about the outside world from their fathers and on domestic matters, on domestic life, from their mom. So if their father takes faith in God seriously, then the message they pick up from that is that God should be taken seriously. So fathers, never underestimate the importance of your role in, in the practice of the faith. Because what we're seeing now, and I'll talk about this more, I think, um, what I think is part of the problem today is that because we haven't fully practiced our faith, and I say we collectively, but as Catholics, but um, Christians in general, why should other people take it seriously? And if, if there's more um, negative that's perceived about it than positive, then why not put restrictions on it? It's no secret that a lot of your peers and mine uh, grew up without a father in the home or a father who didn't go to church or maybe nobody went to church. So perhaps that contributes to what we see today and a lot of people not feeling compelled to participate in religious life. Last fall, in November, the Pew Research Center published a report uh, on those who are members of a congregation, um, that those who attend religious services at, le at least weekly and attend a prayer or a scripture group weekly or monthly are categorized as having a high, medium, or low, or they're at the high level of congregational involvement. They're not a member of a congregation and they seldom or never attend religious services or a small group prayer, Bible study. They're in the low practicing category and everybody else was in the middle. Among US adults who are Christian, 30% have a high level of congregational involvement. 30%. 58% have a medium level. 12% fall into the low category. For some groups, there are uh, larger section or percentages, larger shares of members that are highly involved. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are the most highly involved um, congregations in terms of three measures: Mem the membership in the church, church attendance, and small group activities. Next down on that on that ranking are evangelical Protestants and members of historically black. Protestant denominations. And there are groups within those that are more highly involved than, than not. Guess which group has the least involved members in their congregations? Two groups. Mainline Protestants and Catholics. 20% of mainline Protestants are highly involved. And among Catholics, 16% are highly involved according to these measures. While a solid majority have 70% uh, or a medium level, 70% uh, have a medium level of involvement. So most mainline Protestants and Catholics fall into this medium level of engagement, in part because while many of their members attend religious services, they don't participate in prayer or scripture study. So if we're lukewarm about our faith, and this study would suggest that we are if only 16% of Catholics are highly involved in their congregations. Why should government or anybody else take it seriously? Why, why would they think it mattered what we believe? Speaking specifically to the millennials in the room, um, it's not a secret. It's been, and millennials have to be one of the most studied groups of people in history. <laughs> You feel like you're under a microscope under all, at all times. Um, but millennials are considerably less religious than older Americans. Not a surprise 
fewer young adults belong to any particular faith than their parents did at that time. One fourth of millennials are unaffiliated with any particular faith. They, they identify themselves as either atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. One fourth of young people today. I will get to the good news. Um, of those who are, uh, who do remain fairly traditional in their beliefs and practices, young adults' beliefs about life after death and the existence of heaven, hell, and miracles closely resemble the beliefs of older people today. Young adults pray less often than their elders, but the number of young, young adults who say they pray every day is on par with the portion of young people who said the same in previous decades. So that's, there's some positive there. Not everyone is uh, a pagan. <laughs> Millennials say they believe in God with absolute certainty at rates similar to those seen among Gen Xers a decade ago. So it's a mixed, a mixed bag. Millennials are no less convinced than their elders that there are absolute standards of right and wrong. They're slightly more supportive, interestingly, than their elders of government efforts to protect morality. It's counterintuitive. Um, and, and they're also somewhat more comfortable with involvement in politics by churches and other houses of worship. So you all, those of you who are millennials are a complex bunch. <laughs> By virtue of your attendance here tonight, I, I think you probably fall into the highly involved category, so congratulations. <laughs> but many, if not most of you, grew up like I did, practicing your faith, surrounded by others doing the same thing. Most friends who weren't Catholic went to church, were involved in the faith community. So we were, we were sort of coasting. We never had to explain our faith or defend it because pretty much everybody else around us believed what we believed, or some variation, some Christian variation of that. Even when I worked on Capitol Hill, I worked for evangelicals, for the most part, um, Senator Dan Coates from Indiana and Congressman Mark Sauer from Indiana. And they, you know, evangelicals in general have their opinions about Catholics, but they respected the, the religious beliefs of non-evangelicals because we all had had the same core for the most part. We have the same beliefs in the right to life, the true definition of marriage, and, and things of that nature. The same was true for me when I worked at the White House. Well, as far as I know, the value placed on faith was universally accepted. I never knew of anyone who questioned anyone's religion or, or challenged it. Then I went to the private sector, where attitudes were a little different. I had a colleague who identified herself as an atheist tell me, point blank, and I don't remember what prompted this, that um, the Catholic Church is a cult. She said it was all, in all seriousness. She later ended up going to Catholic University Law School. <laughs> so you tell me where the, where the conflict was. <laughs> uh, another one of my colleagues, and I don't remember, again, the, the context for these these impressions, uh, these encounters is lost on me, but, but uh, the impact sticks. And that was, I might have gone to Mass at lunch or come back from church on Ash Wednesday with ashes on their forehead. And uh, this particular colleague told me that I was too, too Catholic. He subsequently um, struggled mightily and successfully to get his children into Catholic school because he didn't like the public schools around him. Um, and then a, another one, another colleague who I believe had Catholic relatives, nonetheless felt no qualms about telling me one night after watching Bill Maher uh, mock Pope Benedict and the Eucharist, as only Bill Maher could do, um, tell me that he, he was up late watching that because he thought it was hilarious. I mean, it was very poignant, un unnecessary kind of email. So, let's just say my experience was a little different. I had to, I, I wasn't in Oz anymore, or Kansas, or whatever, but, I, I, not Indiana, that's for sure. Um, but, 
what you see now is that in, on, on all sides of the religious perspective, from all religious perspectives, whether you're practicing or not, our um, religious views are looked at through a political lens. So a lot of times your, your politics determines what you believe or don't believe or go along with in, in your religious faith versus the other way around. Catholic teaching for a lot of Catholics doesn't necessarily drive their views about government and political life. So part of the decrease, the decline in respect for our faith and for religious practice in general is our fault. We haven't, we've shied away from it as, as public opinion has changed uh, on certain issues. We may be less inclined to engage on a particular topic or to explain what the church's teaching actually is or to know anything about it besides, well, the church says so. And that isn't going to cut it anymore. We have to, we have to kind of start from zero. I, I remember uh, when I worked at the Archdiocese kind of lamenting the state of affairs in this regard and, and somebody pointed out, you know, it's kind of like going back to the apostles. <laughs> they started with nothing. We at least aren't starting that, that, um, at that level. Um, we also have Catholic politicians who are very public about being Catholic, who take positions very publicly that don't com comport with Catholic teaching. Um, it's, it's made harder than it has to be. Um, they say they publicly support abortion while privately opposing it. There's no privately opposing it when you're a public official. Um, there are Catholic politicians who not only support same-sex marriage, but officiate at same-sex weddings. Catholic colleges and universities have also played a role in this slow erosion of respect for Catholic uh, teaching. They muddy the waters in ways large and small, whether it's the honorary degree, degrees they confer, or the speakers they invite. I'm not saying you have to have a political, I mean, a, a religious purity test for every speaker. And, and universities are where you're supposed to have, engage in dialogue, and I think it's it's good to have somebody who doesn't necessarily share the faith come and talk about it, but there should be a Catholic um, reinforcement to that as well. Inviting Kathleen Sebelius to speak at Georgetown graduation around the time that the Archdiocese of Washington and several other Catholic institutions, 40 some other Catholic institutions, went to court over the HHS mandate when she was Secretary of HHS, sends a message, and it's not one that says, go Catholics. So if we're saying that our beliefs and values aren't really that important to us, then others are going to feel the same way. And if you want a more comprehensive picture with regard to Catholic universities and colleges, you can check out the Cardinal Women's Society website that'll tell you everything you never wanted to know about the errors of Catholic schools in this regard. So Catholic leaders and institutions aren't bulwarks of the faith. And individual Catholics don't really know, and in some cases don't seem to care what the, what the church teaches, what the meaning of church teaching and practices are. Is it any wonder that we're seeing these increasingly seeing legislative initiatives, government mandates, court decisions that erode our, our right to practice our faith? The HHS mandate, as I mentioned, is one high-profile example of this, which gets kind of encapsulated for soundbite purposes into an insurance problem when what really happened, and, and this is hard to explain without having it having an extended conversation with this, is that it changed the definition of what a Catholic institution is. For purposes of insurance, in the case of the Archdiocese of Washington, which are self-insured, it's institutions, Catholic schools, um, the Catholic charities of the Archdiocese of Washington, um, some other organizations were uh, covered under that policy. Well, the government decided that to qualify as a Catholic religious institution, it, you had to serve only Catholic, primarily Catholics, and it had to be um, the 
the service had to be performed primarily by Catholics. So Catholic charities didn't count. We don't serve only Catholics. Catholic schools didn't count because we don't just teach. We don't we don't exclude non-Catholics from our schools. And there was a quote, and I, I'm going to forget who said it now. I think. Cardinal McCarrick, I think, is sometimes credited for saying this, that we don't serve people because they're Catholic. We serve them because we're Catholic. So that change in definition got to the heart of who we are as Catholics, our service ministries, our call to live the gospel. In California recently, the state government went a step further and um, required all employers, even Catholic ones, to provide coverage for elective abortion. So now we're not just talking about things like contraception and abortifacients and sterilization. Now we're talking about abortion. And the, civil, the Federal Civil Rights Office of the Department of Health and Human Services rejected a right of conscience complaint from anti-abortion groups in California. And oh, by the way, the reason this became an issue is because faculty at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles and Santa Clara University, both Catholic co uh, colleges, the faculty raised a complaint that they couldn't have elective abortion cover. So the state required everybody not to have elective abortion cover. So there again, Catholic universities faculty they hire is another is another factor in, in the uh, the way the faith is, is carried out and propagated. And you're all aware of the many other examples, the bakers and most of them revolving around um, same-sex marriage, transgender issues, abortion, and getting a pattern. It's kind of become a state religion. If you, in any way, are opposed to or don't believe, and it's not that you're going to discriminate, not serve somebody, or not um, treat someone, or, or anything like that. You, you just have a different view of things, and you're discriminatory. So, in a lot of ways, Catholic teaching is it comes in direct in direct conflict with that. Another example is the Archdiocese of Washington um, when the D.C. same-sex marriage law passed. The Archdiocese of Washington Catholic Charities had one of the most successful adoption programs in the country in terms of um, placement and, and having it stick. And because they were no longer qualified by, according to D.C. law, to, to serve as a contractor to the city for purposes of facilitating adoption, uh, they had to stop, stop uh, to get out of, the, out of that ministry, out of the, the adoption practice. What's next for Catholic schools? What about Catholic hospitals, Catholic social services? Do we have to deny the teachings of the faith in order to practice these things? So what can we do? aside from drink a lot of beer, <laughs> to address some of these things. Well, one, we have to be informed. We have to know what's going on around us and not just assume that, oh, it's going to be all right. Things in America will never get bad. I, I think we need to take a good hard look. I and mean, these are just facts. I mean, the way that the culture has shifted in the last decade or so and how quickly we've seen things change on the legal front, um, we have to be vigilant. And we have to also know what, what our faith means and why. Why does the church teach what it does on these issues that have become so controversial? Have the confidence to share the faith and not, I don't mean go out and convert people on the street, but be comfortable talking about it, comfortable practicing it. Um, not shy away from it when somebody makes a disparaging comment or kind of jokes about the faith in a way that would suggest that we're not with it or, or that we're somehow discriminatory. Um, if you if you were familiar with Robbie George, Professor Robert George at Princeton, um, 
he is, if you look at his Facebook page, you know, get us, you'll be very well informed about the trends and the things that are happening in, in, this, in this realm. Uh, he's a professor of jurisprudence at, at Georgetown, or I'm sorry, at, at Princeton, and one of the foremost authorities on ethics and religion in public life. In terms of knowing what the church teaches, things like uh, the Vatican website, believe it or not, if you haven't looked at it, it's very accessible. Um, Vatican.va is the site, is the URL. And uh, you know, everything's there, the papal encyclicals, going all the way, well, not all the way back, but pretty far back. Um, and and I, a lot of times we get into this um, conflict, too, about Pope Francis. Conservatives don't like him, liberals like him, there's, we're Catholics, we can't not like the Pope. Um, I like the comparison, or the, the description that I heard not long after Pope Francis, and I was there the night he was elected. It was a very moving time. Uh, I was in Rome, and someone described, oh, after he'd been in for a while, the comparison between, because people try to pit John Paul and Benedict against Francis, and John Paul is the soul of the church. Benedict is the mind, the intellect of the church, and Pope Francis is the heart of the church, so in terms of the modern papacy. And I think if you look at their writings, their encyclicals, their apostolic exhortations, um, their homilies, you can see the continuum, you know, the, the thread from Peter to, to Francis. There's not a lot of difference. There's a difference in emphasis, and there's certainly a difference in the kind of press attention that they've all gotten. But one way to know your faith is to go straight to the source. Um, another obvious source would be the Bible itself, and that sounds basic, but it, it's, it's not something we as Catholics are known for, and I think that's silly because there are plenty of people we know who are involved in Catholic Bible study or who, who read the Bible, but it's, it's another way to bolster your faith on a daily basis because part of this is needing reinforcement. There's a, a lot of times without this kind of group and you're very fortunate to have this kind of um, outlet to, to feel camaraderie and to share, to share faith experience with people of your own age. Um, but reading the Bible on a daily basis will help shore up your your knowledge of and your comfort with the faith. I think that's important. And finally, I would just encourage you to pray, too. I don't think it's... All is not lost. You know, people talk a lot of times, especially given my political background, how the... What are we going to do with this political season, the candidates that we have, or our country is a mess, and I just say, God is still God. You know, there's still a plan. We don't know what it is. Uh, and... It's important to, to, to have that faith. I was talking with a friend recently who was describing his grandfather. He, they weren't, he wasn't Catholic, but he was dying of Alzheimer's and didn't know his wife of more than 50 years, didn't know anybody really. But to his death, bed, or to the point of his death, he knew his faith, he knew God, and he talked about him. So, he still had what was the most important thing when everything else had, had left his memory. Another book I want to recommend to you um, is called, are you familiar with the Catholic Information Center in Washington? Uh, Father John McCloskey used to be the director there and he wrote a book, co-wrote a book called Good News, Bad News, Evangelization, Conversion, and a Crisis of Faith. And they, they probably still sell copies of that there, but it's a very good book in that it, it gives some um, examples of how to address particular questions of the faith when you're asked. He's also somebody who had a, had a powerful impact on, on a lot of influential people. Um, the former head of either Planned Parenthood or now converted under his um, tutelage. Um, Bernard Nathanson, who used to be the most notorious uh, performer of abortions, the doctor performed abortions in the country, converted to Catholicism. So he's somebody that obviously has a persuasive 
way about it a month ago, it would be uh, a good book to be to, to take a look at if you if you're interested in knowing how to to talk about matters of faith. And finally, one of the things that uh, I find helpful is um, praying the rosary, but specifically the the, the sorrowful mysteries. There's a, a book that was published by our Sunday visitor during the year of St. Paul. This was probably seven or eight years ago. It was called Praying the Rosary with St. Paul. And each um, each set of mysteries had a reflection, a Bible pass, scripture passage that applied to it and uh, talked about the, the, the spiritual fruit that was a product of praying that particular mystery. And they're counterintuitive, which I think goes to our countercultural nature of our faith, especially in the current culture. When you pray the, the mystery of the agony in the garden, the spiritual fruit is peace. What could be peaceful about the spiritual, about the, the agony in the garden? Well, Christ had the peace of knowing that he was doing the Father's will and that the, that the Father was with him. The scourging at the pillar, the spiritual fruit, is self control. And that we need a lot too in the current environment because it gets hard to, to maintain that when you feel like you're under attack or challenged a lot. The crowning with thorns, the spiritual fruit is mercy, something that is obviously a topic of this year of mercy called for by Pope Francis. Carrying of the cross, the spiritual fruit is joy. That's a really hard one a lot of times, not just because of the state of religion in America. And finally, the, the crucifixion, the mystery, is the, the fruit of that is love. So those are all things that I think are, um, certainly all the other mysteries, the joyful and the glorious and the luminous are, the fruits of those speak, go directly to the heart of our faith too. But these in particular to me are kind of, the, they, they encapsulate Catholic, the state of Catholic faith in America and, and the practice of the faith. Cardinal Francis George, I'll end with this, with this quote, um, who died in the last year or two, former Archbishop of Chicago, is famously quoted, and he would say misquoted, or incompletely quoted, because most people know the uh, first sentence and not the second sentence. But he said, I expect to die in my bed. My successor will die in prison and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. And people who have, who want, who have a more negative view of, of things right now would, would stick with that. But what he insisted on making sure people knew was that this, the second part of that quote was his successor to the, to the one who dies a martyr in the public square will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has done so often in human history. So, on a more hopeful note, we're at a, we're at a kind of a dark time. Um, it could get darker, probably will, but I think it's incumbent upon us to cling to the things that we know and to our religion that we know are true, um, and our faith helps us do that. And with that, I'm happy to take any questions about any of that. Yes? So, could it also be in part uh, the, re the reason for, I mean, the decline, especially, I mean, added, not just participation, uh, but attitudes towards the uh, Catholic Church, the fact that, I think it's, in some ways, it's got more data, right? be in part due to like, like a lot of the uh, forgotten legacy is from historically of the church. Like that was especially on Garden I don't know if you've heard of uh, Thomas Woods Jr. who was a historian who argued that uh, the church is, I mean, because of a lot of forgotten uh, things the church has done to uh, build, yeah, build up our society, uh, that's largely been forgotten, uh, and rather we've gotten more of a negative historical view of the church. I think to some degree, I don't know that particular person, but I, I think that's true to a certain degree, that people don't realize, I mean, they take for granted the things that the, the Catholics came up with, like schools for people that aren't just 
the noble uh, children of noble women, um, hospitals so people don't die in the street. Those are all things that Christians, Catholics came up with. So to some degree, I think it's true that they don't know. It's a delicate balance in terms of communicating this because as the Archdiocese of Washington saw in the case of the adoption situation, it was portrayed that they were, because they they weren't going to, to um, facilitate adoptions for gay couples that they were they were gonna pick up their marbles and go home and not and not help children who needed new adoptive parents. In fact they were not qualified. The city said you are no longer qualified. So I think when we say things like you don't realize how much we do, it sounds or gets interpreted as some kind of threat that we're gonna withhold that um, as a as a punishment for not getting our way on these things. But it is true that I think we should find creative ways to remind people how much we do. I think if, if um, cities and local and state governments had to take on the kinds of things that, that um, the Catholic Church does through Catholic Charities and other service ministries, they would find themselves in a very big pickle because we do so much on that level that goes unseen. It's not, there are people that that the rest of the society doesn't know about or, or uh, see on a regular basis. And if they do, they're a nuisance. And they're, we're the ones who, who care for them. So I think you're right to some degree that we do need to do a better job of, of talking about all the ways that we contribute to society. Yes? So I don't want to go Question for those of you who didn't hear it is uh, whether or not if the if the Catholic if the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops were to come out of the doors or criticize a particular candidate or party, would they lose the tax exempt status? They they have done that before, and it's not um, they were critical of Paul Ryan's um, poverty program um, and. I don't know about the, the Conference of Bishops. I, I think there's some distinction made between individual uh, or officials of the faith. So what a priest or pastor says outside of the church is, is part of his right to free speech. But um, increasingly you are hearing calls for people to, from people to, that for the, um, for the tax exempt status of churches is to be relinquished, and uh, because increasingly so among people who think we're discriminatory. Yeah. Yes. How do we as Catholics, as millennials, as you put it, kind of bridge the gap between us and the older generation when it comes to understanding Catholicism? Like we use apps, and blogs, and the internet, you mentioned the Vatican website, whereas the Gen X, Gen Y is used more in-person conversations and things like that. So how do we, Paul Adamo's second new evangelization idea, kind of bridge that gap? Well, as a Gen Xer myself, I object to using the term older. <laughs> I, I think, well, what, what, when I was the head of communications for the Archdiocese, a lot of people wanted to get rid of the Catholic newspapers that we published on Friday Air on the Catholic Standard, the actual hard copy paper. Um, and we pushed back a little bit on that because there are people, and we knew, we did surveys to find out who was reading it and what they were reading, and it was all people over 60 who were reading the hard copy of the paper. But that's where the bulk of those people were getting their, the bulk of their Catholic news and their Catholic information. So I think it's important for us to keep up with technology, but not to abandon the platforms that are traditionally the purview of, of the older generations, because everybody gets their news differently, depending on their demographic, and so 
to be universal in the way we share the word. I, we, I emphasize the importance of maintaining the platforms or the, the outlets that, that were um, particularly appealing to, to different groups. Going off of that, what's the best way to, for us to be able to engage our own peers when we talk about the faith? You're talking about how much they're, they're a sort of complicated generation that while there's a contingent of us that are very faithful, many of our peers don't want to well, that I don't think there's a uniform answer to that. The question was, how do we, how do millennials, given the complicated nature of that group uh, in terms of faith, many are the agnostic, atheist, others who are practicing are more intense about their faith. How do you, how do you? interact and, and reach out to those people and, I, and that is on a case-by-case -case basis and that's where there's no roadmap really you have to be human I mean there's there's human interaction and, it, and we've gotten so used as so accustomed as Americans to siloing religion um, this famous separation wall of separation um, which has effectively Not completely, but the, the direction is to drive religion out of the public square, out of public discussion, that you don't discuss it. I think there's a way to do it, um, but it depends on your knowledge of that person. And you can't just walk up to somebody and start talking to them about faith. You can, but you're probably not going to be that effective. So I think it, it depends on your relationship with that person. Maybe invite them to go to Mass. That'll start a conversation, you know, see what it's all about. Uh, come to Theology on Tap. Hear a perspective that they may not have heard before. I mean, if they're open intellectually, and this is, this is often the rub, you have to be open-minded. Catholics are so close-minded. Well, if you're open-minded, come and see what the Catholic, Catholic faith and the Catholic Church are all about. It's, that's a two-way street. It often doesn't come out that way. Did you have something? No. Okay. Yes. I just have a question. I always hear this from like kind of like this question, like somebody friends that doesn't have share with me. I'm having I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Oh, sorry. So like, for example, they would say like they should let's say uh, same-sex marriage, right? They would always say like, oh, why would you care about that? That doesn't affect anybody. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's, it's none of your business. It's their business. They're the one getting married. Like, how do I, you know what I mean? Like, as a Catholic, of course, I want to be on traditional marriage, but how can I still be loving to them at the same time, right? Now that the truth is, it's they're saying it's none of our business. How are we going to address that? Well, again, that's a double. They're, they're kind of having it both ways. It's none of our business, but if we don't believe it and we don't teach it and we don't embrace it um, as an institution and have it on our campuses or, or um, otherwise promote it or be positive about it, then, then we are the ones who are, who are wrong. So it, you see what I mean? It's like the, we, if, if it doesn't affect them, if it doesn't affect us, then let's just leave it at that. It used to be the case that you had you could believe what you believed, tax exempt status, religious exemptions, and things like healthcare mandates. It was a given that there was a religious perspective, and it might not be completely simpatico with the government perspective. So the religious organization was going to have an exemption from particular rules. That is quickly going out of the out the window and. Um, the implication there is the government is saying that 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 belief is not correct. So the government is weighing in on our religious belief and practice. I don't know how to tell you to talk to that person. I would ask. I would. I would recommend that you talk to your pastor because I, I, I'm not an expert on that. But I can say um, you're gonna you're gonna need to get some spiritual guidance from from your pastor on how to deal with that situation. Anybody else? Yeah. Man, oh, just, uh, 
sorry. No, go ahead. I was just saying, uh, I hear a lot about the, the concerns that you bring up for the Catholic Church and the Catholic community. When is it going to be time for civil disobedience? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't come here to foment civil disobedience. But uh, I, I know, I understand the impulse, but I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I can't say if X, Y, Z happens, we're going to do this. I mean, we have to look to our to our Catholic leaders, um, Catholic bishops, um, and we have to try to we have to seek to understand too, because a lot of times people react angrily when the bishops don't do what they want them to do, and we have to try and do a better job of um, trying to understand. What, their, what the rationale is for that. I, and that's not to say that we can't disagree on certain things. I mean, obviously not on all things, but I, I, don't, I don't know how to answer your question. I'm, I'm, not, sure, I'm not sure what the trigger it's, point it's is. It's a tough question, but Martin Luther King led you know, the civil rights movement. True. Oh yeah, I'm not disputing it. I'm not saying it would be bad. I'm just saying I, I can't tell you if and when the appropriate time is for that. If I may, yeah. just as a follow-up to that. Um, I was uh, Benedict XVI, who was still Cardinal Latin, who said, who said, lose your religion, lose your faith, and what you follow is your culture. I guess that it is up to us to lose our culture. And by that, I'm not saying that uh, let's be the soil of the United States and Constitution, not that. But we have to ask ourselves what our culture is. I think the most I'll, I'll take you just a second well, I think the most important thing we can do as individuals is to live our faith to practice it to not be ashamed of it or embarrassed or kind of cower do you ever go to Whole Foods after you've gone to Mass and turn your bulletin over your church bulletin <laughs> because you're worried how somebody at Whole Foods it's gonna what they're gonna do to your car if they see your I mean that's a silly example, but my point is there are things, there's subtle things we do that are we take cues from the culture and they directly relate to how we convey our faith. And I think that more than anything and, and I don't mean it's important to do it all in love. I mean we can't be angry, we can't um, we can't challenge people in a in a hostile way. I mean, this is that this is the challenge of our faith. That there's the the um, the dichotomy again, the, the conundrum. You're, we have to do all this in love, and that's hard to do. You you had a question. Yeah. So I kind of answered it. Did I really mean it to? <laughs> so we have, we have social norms, we have etiquettes, we have different ways in which people view the world and society, especially American society. And then we have the church, we have the gospel, we have the fat life, we live. How do we, because um, now culture has shifted, we're no longer, we used to be, you know, the Catholic church really did try to find how we can interact with each other. But that line between what is socially acceptable and what is socially unacceptable is becoming, I think, very blurred, and we've done a very good job of appeasing it. Mm -hmm. um, at the sacrifice of our own, like you said, turning over the church bulletin, um, or not making the sign of the cross in public, how dare we? So, what can we do as millennials or just simply as Catholics to actually go out and, and to be Catholic in public besides the option of um, knowing that might not be socially acceptable, um, and I might not use it, but... The example you made, you gave about making the sign of the cross is related to an example that Cardinal Merle once mentioned when we were, there was a conversation about this. He and other bishops in Baltimore for, the, for the, one of the annual meetings went to a restaurant for dinner, and there was a group of young people there. Um, a small group, five, four or five people, who said a blessing before they ate and they made the sign of the cross in a restaurant. And I can't remember which, it might have been Cardinal World that went over to them and acknowledged that they did that. And um, it's an unusual thing. You don't see 
anybody doing it, and Catholics are not not known to be comfortable doing it. I, I can tell you members of my own family who are not comfortable <laughs> because they feel like it's somehow shoving religion down somebody's throat. You're you're practicing your faith. You're saying your blessing. You're praying before your meal. You happen to be in public, but there's no yet. There's no prohibition on that. So it's our own um, kind of self censoring that keeps us from doing things like that. And it doesn't have to be a, you know, a grand display. It can be very subtle, but it, it, it does get noticed, and I think it makes an impression. If you're not ashamed to pray in public in that way, it, it, it does have a, an impact on people that we don't, that we'll never know, because we don't know them, that they will have not acknowledged that in some way. You got a question? There's a little response to the gentleman's uh, answer before. I think, sir, if we ever come to a position where we ask, should we be simply disobedient or asking the wrong question? I think it should be what is right and what is wrong. I'm not concerned with what is simply politically correct or not. Simply, if you're doing what is right, if you're loving, if you're being Catholic, no matter if it's permissible uh, in society or not, then you're doing what's right, and then society would deem it as civil disobedience or not. Um, maybe said earlier that we all know that culture affects us, we all too affect culture. And I think that's what it means. Insofar as there's never going to be a time where the church is be civilly disobedient, it's right. going to say love, it's going to say do what's right, not what's wrong. It's always come to a point that you can decide what's right and what's wrong. That. He mentioned what was the king. I don't think Martin Luther King ever set out to be silly disobedient. He set out to do what was right in the country. And that meant marching on Washington. That meant uh, treating the king just like we right. march on Washington for the rest of our life. And right. say that's how yeah. it's going to be I think. Um, I just had a thought and I lost it. Um, We have an obligation to advocate for justice, whether it's for ourselves, but especially for other people. So that's certainly a component of the social justice movement. I mean, people make their positions known on, those, on things um, all the time. When there's an injustice, it's, it's publicized. We make a point of highlighting it in some way. Um, so it's not... I don't think reacting in love doesn't mean not pursuing justice or, or speaking up for justice, but it requires discretion at the moment and in a particular example. You'll know it, I think, when you see it, I guess, is the best way to describe it. And I don't know yet what that is. Any other questions? Anybody else need a beer? <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much.